Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Resonance Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from Continuum. When we hear about somebody being good with code, we usually think about a person who's good at building websites, mobile apps, or other software-related things. Perhaps it was only a matter of time before genetic codes were being manipulated by these savvy, science-minded folks. This work, call it biodesign, is currently happening at a company called Ginkgo Bioworks, a synthetic biology company that custom designs and licenses bioengineered living organisms for companies looking for specific new smells and tastes. For example, they've made a customized rose fragrance for a perfume company by extracting the genes of roses, injecting them into yeast, and then coaxing that yeast to produce the exact fragrance that the rose does. Some might say that sounds artificial, but you could equally argue that it's more natural than using chemicals to try and mimic a particular smell. But where do we go from roses? Are all of our beloved foods and beverages going to be genetically tweaked at some point? What other applications are there out there for biodesign? To find out, we invited Christina Agapakis, creative director at Ginkgo Bioworks, to talk with us about the work that they do and what she thinks the future holds for synthetic biology. Christina had a nice morning cup of tea with Continuum's Mike Dunkley, senior vice president and head of the medical line of business, to discuss whether a bioengineered rose really smells as sweet. Hi, Christina. Welcome. Thank I'm you. Super Hi. excited to uh, be chatting with you t t today. Um, so maybe a great place to start is Ginkgo Bioworks. What sure. do you guys do? Ginkgo Bioworks is an organism design company. Uh, we work with a lot of different companies uh, across a lot of different industries who are maybe having some issues with their supply chains or looking for different ways of manufacturing their products and finding ways where biology and specifically microorganisms might be able to help them. So a lot of the work that we do uh, is engineering microbes uh, so that they can produce a new kind of compound during the process of fermentation. So we brew these microbes um, and we out of those, uh, out of that beer, effectively, we get ingredients that might end up in perfume, uh, in in food, uh, in cosmetics, all sorts of different products. And so, people talk about this particular industry as being the next kind of really exciting thing. So, can well, you it is for of, me. <laughs> <laughs> but can you kind of add some color to that? You know, is is that a fair assessment? And if so, why should we be so excited? The, this idea of like the next big thing, the next thing, the revolution, I think that that can be a little overblown and can can lead us into sort of silly <laughs> kinds of statements. Um, but I think when, uh, you know, the field that I did my PhD in and that we, the company really grew out of, um, really grew out of this this uh, analogy between biology and computer science and, and software engineering. The idea that you could uh, engineer DNA sequence the way that you might be able to engineer software code. And so I think that metaphor, that analogy is a little too simplistic, um, but I think it leads us into some really interesting kinds of thought experiments. So um, one of our founders, Tom Knight, is a computer scientist, and he always likes to say, like, oh, you know, would the person that invented the, the transistor, you know, back when he, when he did that, would he have been able to imagine, like possibly imagine the iPhone? Um, I think that in some ways we're, we're in the same place today with biology. You know, the people who are building those tools for us to be able to work with biology, to design biology, uh, we can't possibly imagine what is going to be happening 50, 100 years from now. And so I think then when you, when you kind of rework the analogy again and think about how the, the 
information in industry, information technology has changed so much about how we do things uh, in the past 50 years. Uh, I think we might see a similar transition in how we do things when we have more access to biological technologies. Um, and so I don't think that we're going to be, you know, our computers might not be using DNA, <laughs> but anything that is kind of made of physical stuff um, is something that's going to be potentially impacted by the field of biology. Cool, cool. So, I mean, it's it's clear that it's exciting. You've kind of, you have a technology with huge potential, but you're, you haven't kind of mapped out the future entirely at this point. We're, we're in the very early stages. I think it's still early, yeah. yeah. Cool. And how did you end up in, in the role that you have? I mean, so my title is creative director, which sounds a little strange, I think, for for a biotech company. Right. Um, so I think the the reason why I I think creativity and and design are are at the center of what I do and and what I think biotech can do uh, is because of work that I've done um, starting in my PhD, working and collaborating with artists and designers, um, thinking about the way that um, cultural issues and social issues and the kind of the stuff at the human scale impacts how we think about and how we might design things at the molecular scale. Right. I want to, during, during the conversation, I want to dig into that a little bit more. It's like, sure. how do you, one of the, one of the questions I have coming into this conversation is at one end, you've got this really kind of um, advanced science and at the other end you've got you know unmet needs or some creativity and they're potentially very very different worlds so how do those worlds intersect and collide so I'd love to dig into that but may- maybe um, first point to start is just the technology itself right and you know maybe in not in layman's terms but in terms that hopefully um, most most people would understand what, what's going on what are we doing biology is awesome <laughs> I think I hope everyone can understand that uh, I think uh, what microbes can do, what cells can do, what biology can do is really powerful. And so that's where we start. We look at what is it that, that cells can do? What is what is the kind of, you know, what is the chemistry that cells can do? What are the kinds of things that those cells are making? Um, so when we're talking about making a fragrance, for example, you can say, well, there's a plant um, that smells beautiful. <laughs> we want to be able to access some of that uh, fragrance and understand how it does it. Um, so we look to the biochemistry of those cells. How, how, what are the enzymes living inside of the plant that are actively making those, those compounds that make the fragrance? And then we can take the genes that encode that, that enzyme and we can put it into a yeast. Um, and that's thanks to now, now 50 years of research in molecular biology and, and an understanding of DNA, um, those we've, those tools to work with that and to synthesize DNA and, and uh, target DNA sequences into new genomes is something that, that's become really sophisticated and something that we can now begin to really design new pathways of enzymes inside of yeast. Right. Is that... No, absolutely. So you're taking yeah. yeast and mm-hmm. you still want yeast to be yeast, right? You still yeah. want it to be able to replicate, grow, oh, yeah. and thrive, right? But you're inserting some new genetic code which allows that to do things of direct interest. So that produces this new product, mm-hmm. um, intracellularly, extracellularly, and, and then hopefully that's, you know, in the direction of in the direction of what you're trying to achieve. Exactly. But um, I, I noticed um, the way Ginkgo talks about um, talks about this is this idea of rational design, right? You, you could imagine this being pure trial and error, right? Just a numbers game. And, and maybe when it first started out, there was, there was a large element of, of that. But this idea to be able to kind of predictably insert new genetic code and know that you're going to get the right 
product mm -hmm. and the right productivity. It's like, how rational is that at this point? You know, on a scale like of naught to 10, where naught is purely, you know, hit and miss and 10 is like, yep, you just dial into the software and there it is. Where are we at this point? So that, that zero naught, <laughs> I guess, is, is kind of like evolution, right? Maybe it's the, my Britishness, the, forgive me. The, uh, that you would have random changes in the genome mm -hmm. uh, and then you'd be able to select for changes mm -hmm. that you are looking for. Um, so yeah, that's that's not our approach. Um, our, our approach is it, it combines rational design with some strategies to kind of give us um, the give us the broadest picture of evolutionary space as we can mm -hmm. because we can't so so okay, let me uh, let me start like zoom out a little bit. So you can do biochemistry and know the functions of certain enzymes in that, you know, I know that this enzyme will be able to convert sugar to this other compound that's downstream from sugar. Or, and then, you know, if I add these three enzymes together in a row, what we see is that sugar gets converted into the smell of flowers. Mm -hmm. Right, and so that kind of research in biochemistry and, and an understanding of the function, the chemical function of enzymes, that's known. Where we, what we can't predict very well is that that productivity side that you that you mentioned. So we we can guess pretty well, you know, what those enzymes will be making if they're inside of a cell within within a certain boundary, um, but we won't know that it's going to be doing it really well at a way that's going to be relevant commercially when you are starting to grow them in the tank. And so the what what our strategy is is to actually say, well. Evolution has probably already solved this problem. There's probably an enzyme out there that is better, that is going to have a higher productivity. So let's synthesize all of them, <laughs> as many enzymes as we can find that have similar, um, a similar sequence, a similar function, put them in the cells, and then test and see which one is best. So that's the combination of the rational design of like knowing which enzymes you want to put in, plus this kind of more not quite trial and error, but like experimental empirical approach of, of having many that you're testing from. Got it. So you're deliberately, you're making deliberate modifications mm -hmm. within, you know, what you know to be the today's science, but you're still applying that over a, you know, a wide number of, you know, variants so that you, you know, you increase the likelihood of success. Exactly. And so that's like, th that's really part of big central to the, the philosophy of ginkgo mm -hmm. um, in that if you want to be able to synthesize and test and, and build all of these different prototypes effectively, right. um, you have to build not just the understanding of the biochemistry and the understanding of the cells, but you have mm -hmm. to also build automated tools to help you right. access those kinds of prototyping, that rapid right. prototyping. So when we talk about prototyping, we're, we're generally talking about building something and testing something and learning, right? Mm -hmm. so, so what does that cycle look like? I get that, like, the, the end product is this new perfume ingredient, right? Mm -hmm. But but you know, what are the kind of critical points along that process at which you're like, yeah, I've, I've got something, and I know I've got something because I've tested it this way. What does you know, what does that look like? So in fact, like our teams are, we split our team into design, build, and test. Okay. <laughs> um, and so we were very much on this kind of yeah engineering prototyping um, kind of system. We don't you know, I think talk, speaking with designers, I think what's different in our kind of rapid prototyping is that we have to do it in parallel um, just to be able to access as much of the prototype space as possible. You know, if you're gonna make 10,000 versions of something, doing them one after the other is gonna be, is harder than doing them all at once. <laughs> um, 
And so our design team is, you know, building those sequences, designing those sequences, um, not building, designing them. Uh, and, and those sequences then are sent to a DNA synthesis provider. Um, those synthesized sequences come back and our build team will assemble them and put them into cells. So our build team builds the engineered cell, the prototype. Um, and then our test team does the the experimental work to see well what is it what's happened what is this what is different about this prototype from all the other ones which one is producing the most of this compound which one that seems the the healthiest uh, sort of throughout the cell because that's also important you don't want your product to be hurting the cells um, and then from that we can learn a, a lot about which enzymes are working well we can start to kind of narrow down the focus of the prototype space um, and our design team can then go back again and iterate and, and find you know refine the design from there and and so with with perfume in particular I mean yeah. my mental model coming to this is almost certainly wrong right I'm imagining there's somebody that's kind of has this kind of olfactory kind of specialism like smelling am I getting enough of this mm -hmm. thing of interest it, that's not happening right are you you are you kind of chemically analyzing what's coming out and saying yeah this is exactly the kind of thing we want to make or at what point do you say, yeah, this is this is what we have? So yeah, we're using um, analytical techniques that the fragrance industry uses, but are uh, are a little bit downstream from the person actually, right, right. you know, sniffing the bottle. We do right. eventually, like uh, you know, when we do produce enough that that people can smell, and we we think we've hit on a good prototype, we do start bringing in those those human smellers right, to right. try and, and make sure, you know, is this, does this smell right to you? Is this what you, what you're looking for? Um, but, but yeah, before we get there, the first, the first level is definitely an, an analytic approach where we're trying using m machines basically to right. smell and see what's there. How far do you think we're away from being able to kind of imagine a product that you want to create, um, be able to kind of codify the properties, maybe it's a new material, the strength, the, mm -hmm. the weight, whatever, and predictably kind of push that through. Is, is that... The, Without is that, any prototyping? Well, no, but, but with just um, in terms of, you know, it's a maturity scale thing. Is there going to be a point where, you know, it's so kind of, you're so confident, deterministic that this is, this is you know, it's going to take X amount of, you know, experiments to get there. Is that the future or is it always going to involve this kind of trade-off between what you actually get, the scale, the number of prototypes? I think it's a good question. I think um, I think it'll be somewhere in between. I think we, we, we have seen that, that our process gets better as, as we do more of it. You know, right. our, uh, you know, each cycle can get shorter. You know, we, we have better algorithms and better tools for being able to kind of narrow the design space in advance. Um, but there's a lot there's a lot that is unpredictable still and and I think that will remain unpredictable in interesting ways so and and predictability in biology I think is something that that can be misinterpreted mm -hmm. so it's not like my yeast is going to become a lizard <laughs> right like uh, so unpredictable right um it's, you let us know if that happens yeah it's right. more and, and and so in fact like even um you know there there are questions like oh you know what if you know you're your yeast becomes pathogenic or you know like haven't you seen Jurassic Park and it's like actually it, it's uh like yeah it, it's almost as as ridiculous like to a biologist to say like you know your yeast will become a pathogen if you add genes that produce fragrance compounds um as it is to say your yeast will become a lizard um because because the yeah the the like path it would take to get from one to the other is is impossible <laughs> yeah like uh yes yeah 
So um, we could talk all, all day about the technology, but one, one of the things that intrigues me around this is how, how do you connect these potential end users, whether it's a new rose perfume or a new, you know, material for furniture with mm-hmm. the starting point, right? So I, I think I read some, I don't know whether it was on your website or another one, around is it my, mycelium, a mushroom mm-hmm. fungus, and that being, you know, actually really interesting in terms of furniture material or the potential to create, you know, clothing fabrics from... I mean, mm-hmm. these, to me, feel like such different worlds that previously haven't been connected. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm imagining this kind of hipster fashion designer of yeah. Brooklyn, right? And then this Craig Venter or whatever, right? Yeah. They, they don't get together, or do they? I mean, what, what, how, how's that? how are we connecting user needs, opportunities with the science? That's really interesting and <laughs> a really good question because... Uh, it in fact is hipster designers in Brooklyn who are um, messing around with the biology, right? And and they're they're starting to ask different kinds of questions. They're trying to they they start to see the potential and they make these kinds of connections. Um, so when you're talking about mycelium uh, and and mycelium uh, like mushroom as a material to make objects and art out of, um, there's an artist named Phil Ross, uh, and he was interested in mushrooms like now maybe like 20 years ago he was interested in mushrooms and all that they could do and the kinds of compound medicinal compounds they might be producing and he started just experimenting with them as an artist um and what he ended up finding was that you could produce these bricks of mushroom um and and he started experimenting with those as now as materials in his artwork and so he made these big arches and spaces and chairs and furniture um and from his work that's inspired now a a large field of people and many different kinds of designers and and several companies including his own company called Mycoworks that's trying to make new kinds of materials and new kinds of objects out of this material this biomaterial so yeah someone who came from the arts but used a biological material in a new way Um, similarly um, there's a woman named uh, Suzanne Lee who's the chief creative officer at a biotech company called Modern Meadow she's a fashion designer and and her question in her like early work as a fashion designer was you know what's going to be the textile of 100 years from now and she Kind, I don't even know. She tells the story better than I do, obviously. But um, you know, somebody said, "What about biology? What about biological materials? Could you grow a garment?" And that got her now, you know, now ten, fifteen years later, to be working at a company that's trying to grow leather. And so, you know, c- you know, connecting those dots and having people kind of coming from a creative um, industry, from a creative point of view, from a creative background and training, um, and learning ap- about something, you know being able to access the biology and those materials and start playing around with them, that brings those new opportunities, which brings together the scientists and brings them in. Right. Yeah. But, but in terms of, like, are the venues out there now where these traditionally separate worlds are colliding deliberately? Like, you've got the creative people with their ideas and yeah. then the scientists and they're, they're mixing it and kind of riffing together? Is that what's happening? Uh Yes and no. So I think um, what I see is much more coming from the world of design. So I think you have now, you know, master's programs popping up in, you know, deliberately intersecting fields for designers. So like in design schools where designers are going to be engaging with new kinds of technologies and new kinds of materials. Um, You have, you know, design... um, 
studios and, and research groups and design researchers who are independently working on and, and approaching this and reaching out to scientists. I think it's much it's much more rare in my experience to see the scientists going the other way and 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 walking towards the the designers without kind of having to be pulled a right. little bit. Right. Um, I'd love to see more of that, and I think that's where there's going to be a. a so much creativity and so much new potential for ideas of yeah what what is it going to be if you know from the transistor to the iPhone you know from where we are right. now and what we can do with DNA to the future I think we do need that that energy and that that vision and the kinds of questions that you ask when you do come together right so when you look at some of the um, applications that you know public, at least publicly disclosed like you have I think a relationship with Noma you know a world famous restaurant in Copenhagen around. Um, the potential to, you know, engineer a novel yeast and get some really exciting new flavors in wines and vinegars, right? I get that that is kind of exciting. It has great PR potential. It gives you, you know, a, a goal to aim for in terms of developing your science, right? But I don't connect that to, you know, a company that's raised, you know, $100, $100 million or more, right? Mm -hmm. So um, how are you thinking about uh, future markets and it's like what are the big kind of global drivers of the the value here yeah. you know, I'm thinking you know the, there's obviously the way to make completely new um, products right so mm -hmm. that's one but we you know what what are the what are the major kind of trends here that are that, that, that give you reason to be yeah no, that's, a, that's right. a great question so uh, the I think the smaller projects, like our project with Ariel Johnson from Noma, she's now at the Media Lab here in Boston, in Cambridge. But um, she, yeah, we're we were interested in kind of asking this question. Okay, this technology exists. What's going to be interesting about doing it in fine dining, right? Like that's the you know being able to make those connections. I think I agree. You know, like I think those those kind of push us in different directions, but they're not driving. They're not the main driver of the technology or the business. Um, so I think where we're seeing a lot of drivers uh, are in industries that are making stuff. You know, whether that stuff is uh, flavors and fragrance and those kinds of biological type compounds, things that interact with us, you know, our, our noses and mouths, those tastes and smells. Um, that's, a, that's a large industry that, that is looking for better ways of producing a lot of their ingredients, um, looking for understanding the kinds of limitations that, that exist around their own supply chains and, and looking for new opportunities and, and ways to kind of to make new things. Um, and so that's a that's an industry that until very recently was not really accessible to biotechnology. Biotechnology was just pharma and right. maybe agriculture. Um, and I think that that perception um, was, is large was largely driven by the cost of doing genetic engineering and of doing biotechnology. Um, and now as those costs come down, as the, the technology gets better, the new kinds of markets open up, things that it may have not been possible before. Maybe it was too small of a market 20 years ago um, to make sense, um, but now it's starting to make sense. So flavors or fragrance is a big one, and that's where we've, we've seen uh, a lot of drive driving of, of this kind of industry and a lot of interest in, in what it is possible to be able to do and, and how we can support their supply chains. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, I think the food industry, food and nutrition, so there's, that's a biological industry <laughs> and a place where there's a lot of opportunities for um, where biology can make a, make a really big impact. Um, and then I think there's, there's another space uh, in 
just like actual stuff. Um, so we have a partnership with a company called Genomatica. Uh, they are using biology and fermentation to produce the kinds of uh, chemical compounds that end up in everything. So like the kinds of plastics and materials that that kind of end up throughout all of our stuff, you know, the mm-hmm. uh, like for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so could all that stuff be bio-based? Could it be coming from a renewable source? So that question, I think, is, is animating a lot of driver. Uh, so it, it's, is sustainability then a key driver? I think so. I think it's a real. It's definitely a huge motivator for m- many of the people in the field, um, the, the scientists and engineers working in the t- in, in the field, and definitely a pull for a lot of different industries looking for those bio-based solutions for a number of different issues that they have. Right. And what about other kind of things? So I think about food. You can think about food as the potential to build kind of novel nutritional mm-hmm. elements, right? Or you can think about food in the case of like national security. Right? Mm-hmm. Is it? Are you? Are you thinking about these things differently or trying to get a sense of, you know, the big picture question here is what's the roadmap, right? Yeah. You've got the opportunity space seems huge, but yeah. how, how deliberate are you as a company thinking about these different opportunities and, you know, what, which to tackle first? Very deliberately. <laughs> um, I think, of course, right? Like how to the question of how to build a sustainable business is, right. of course, you know, something that we're... Is, is on our minds and is something that we're very actively working on. So you know, my bias personally is towards the those smaller projects and those projects that kind of give us a different feel for things or a new taste or a new mm-hmm. experience. Um, but I think that there's there's so much power and potential in biology uh, to impact all of these different spaces and fields. And so it's 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 a matter of, of yeah, prioritizing, finding the right partners, um, and and finding the right kinds of projects that are going to be able to mm-hmm. to to show the potential for different industries. Mm-hmm. So maybe um, interesting to kind of think about how you get into business relationships with your clients, right? Because mm-hmm. I could imagine that proof of concept is not necessarily a cheap thing to achieve here, right? There's a lot of Mm-hmm. Um, understanding that's got to be um, codified, and you got to do these vast number of experiments, right? So, h- how does that work? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, how do you how do you engage with somebody? They may have an idea, but how do you build that confidence to a point where both parties are like, "Yep, there's something in this," and you you know you have, have a viable business model, I guess, at the end of the day. Yeah, uh, that relationship is really interesting, and 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 uh, it's iterative and it, and, and it goes through so many different kinds of um, levels as we as we build our relationships with our partners you know they they look like um, I, I I'm actually curious to hear from from you guys too uh, like how similar it is to the kind of processes you you build with your projects and your partners like for us it's a you know yeah, you know, we can we can show people what we've done before we can show people the technology we can show people the potential um, yeah you have to convince them that that's what's something they need and something that is worth investing in um and then um you have to then work together to find a project that makes sense for both sides mm-hmm. you know what's what's going to be a good great target for their business what's the what has a good market that that this makes sense for mm-hmm. um what makes sense technically and biologically you know is this a compound that biology can make um is this a kind of a uh, kind of process that's going to be scalable um all of those kinds of questions are things that we're we're asking and and going back and forth with our partners as as we build these projects together yeah. 
I, I, interesting you ask about our company. Yeah. I suspect in, you know, there are, there's a high degree of similarity. At the end of the day, we, you know, we're selling trust, right? We're, we are able to point to the, the, the great successes we've had with previous customers. We, we lean on our process and a belief in our methodology. But at the end of the day, it comes, it comes back to we know what we, we're doing. We've done this before. Mm -hmm. But also to make sure that that investment on our client side is is uh, is metered, that, that we can show progress throughout the process, yeah. right? This idea of building something is, mm -hmm. is the value in the idea that we've, you know, we've, we've co-created mm -hmm. is, is, is a critical piece. Um, you know, we only take it so far and then, you know, um, we'll support our clients as they kind of deploy it in their organization. And, and I guess there's That's a point at which you too, would, yeah. would stop as well, right? You don't want to, you don't want to become like the owner of large capital biofermentation plants I imagine exactly right. I mean so that's that's been, our approach has, has been yeah to, to do right. that manufacturing through partnerships um, right. through whether whether it's a sort of contract manufacturer right. whether through it's our partner customer um, that already is working in with large-scale fermentation or whether it's with our partner Amaris um, right. which is another company in our in this space that's done fantastic work in that in that scaling and manufacturing right and then in terms I mean maybe maybe this is something that we can go into lightly but the business model right Right. Are, you, are you basically charging your clients um, along that process through proof of concept or is it more of a you're making the investment, you'll get to proof of concept, there's some kind of royalty. I imagine IP is everything in your industry, right? So you want to retain the learning and be yeah. able to build that into your future value, right? But can you, is, can you say anything about that? Yeah. So, um we believe that organism is the product. That's one of our kind of taglines, I guess. Right. And, and that means that um, it's, it's, we license that organism to our customers, and then we get royalties back on, on uh, what benefit they see on top of their traditional ways of doing things. Right. Um, that's I think where the the main the main business lies, you know, in, in those royalties that are coming in the future. We, we do have, you know, fees and milestones and all that right. stuff but that's uh that's just part of the that's part of the process and not right. the whole story i think yeah we we see the value of these kinds of organisms and products long term mm -hmm. and so that's why we build the royal and so you're vested in your customer success exactly cool. yeah right. yeah right. we we succeed when they succeed right yeah so um i maybe left you know, one of the more intriguing questions to the end. So um, you talked about the benefits of technology sustainability, right? Yeah. But this this is GMO, right? Yeah. This scares the shit out of people. Uh -huh. So how um, how do you bridge that gap between the reality? You know, um, this you know it's not entirely benign, but it's not like you say it's not you're going to suddenly end up with a lizard when you're trying to kind of iterate a, a new vinegar flavor, right? Mm -hmm. How do you bridge that gap between what, what it really is and what it can do mm -hmm. and the inevitable kind of fear of the, the new, the unknown and the public perception. Yeah. And how much of your time is spent on that kind of challenge? I think a lot about it and I think a lot about, and I work really hard to understand where fear comes from um, and, and what people's objections and opinions are and when where they come from. I've found um, there's some really interesting work actually in the sociology of science. There's a sociologist named Claire Maris who wrote a fantastic piece about um, 
uh, something that she calls synthetic biology phobia phobia. You know, so I, you know, I did my PhD in synthetic biology, and like constantly it, within the field, people are talking about, wow, you know, everyone is so afraid of GMOs. What are we going to do about it? And that fear of fear shapes the way that we think about and talk about the work that we do. Um, so I think for for me. And, and the work that I do in thinking about how we're going to build new kinds of products and design new things and communicate about them, um, I, I work to battle that fear that's from the from the scientist side, you know, the and because I think within that fear is assumptions about people and their beliefs and mm. their perceptions and their understandings of the science that that are not always borne out in reality. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of assumptions that people are stupid, <laughs> and that's why they don't like GMOs. And if we just told them how great GMOs are, then they would love GMOs, and that's clearly not it either. Um, and so for me. You know what I've what I see and what I've tried to understand from from you know reading this kind of sociology and talking to people is that that a lot of the a lot of tensions around new technologies really come down to values and so being able to show our values and and build that kind of trust you know whether it's with our customer or our customer's customer I think is really really important so we focused on transparency we want to talk about how we make these GMOs and how they're great and that may, not everyone's going to like it because they have opposite they're opposed to fundamentally opposed to changing DNA mm -hmm. that's fine you can make that choice I think and, and we want to leave that choice up to people we want to trust people to make that choice um, and then I think other people are going to find like oh well you know I am I I I see where our values do align you know on sustainability on this is kind of just cool and interesting, and I want to try this, right? I, I hope that, that there will be a large group of people who fall more in that, in right. that camp. But. Great. Well, look, I'm definitely in the second category. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really, really cool what you're doing. Tremendously exciting. Um, we're definitely going to keep an eye on, on what you guys are doing. So thank you very much for chatting today. It's been great. Thank you. Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, it's not really innovative until it exists. If you want to learn more about Continuum and the work we do, go to continuuminnovation.com. Thank you to Christina and to Mike for their great conversation today. Undying gratitude to Kip, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Much appreciation to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all of his masterminding behind the scenes. And to our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Thank you.